Tonight we're continuing our study called Small Verses, Big Lessons, looking at some of the shortest verses in our English Bibles. And today we're coming from the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, and verse number 1. So I hope you'll be turning there in your Bibles, Hebrews, chapter 13, verse number 1. And like with the rest of these lessons, we'll examine this short verse in its context, both the verses around it and its section, and also the context in the Bible as a whole. A little bit about the book of Hebrews before we dive into Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews is one of the more uh, complex, especially linguistically, more complex books that we have in the New Testament, likely written in the 60s AD before AD 70. And from the content of Hebrews, it seems to be written to a group of majority ethnically Jewish Christians who used to practice Judaism. They converted to Christianity, and now they're faced with the temptation of going back to Judaism. Maybe it's because of persecution. Maybe it's because life as a Christian in an area that's majority Jewish has become increasingly more difficult. And they're kind of looking longingly back at reverting to Judaism. And the anonymous, at least to us, author of Hebrews is trying to encourage them to stay in the race of faith, to remind them of how great Christianity is, to remind them of how following Jesus is so much superior to following the law of Moses. Overall, the message of Hebrews can be summarized as an encouragement to endure steadfast in the faith, for in Christ we have a better salvation, a better rest, a better high priest, a better covenant, better promises, a better hope, a better sacrifice, a better kingdom. I hope you see the theme there in the book of Hebrews. And though there's a lot of doctrinal deepness in Hebrews, in fact, the Hebrews author one time has to stop himself and say, I'd like to go more into the subject of Melchizedek, but you've become dull of hearing and you need to be taught again the fundamental principles. Though there's a lot of depth, there's also some practical exhortations. And that's what we see in Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse number 1. And as is our habit in this series, we'll look at kind of a breakdown of the section that Hebrews 13.1 is in. So if you would look in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 13, we'll see the first section, these commands about benevolence. Hebrews 13, 1 through 3 and verse 16. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to the strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. And then verse number 16 we read, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. And then you've got commands or exhortations about purity, personal purity, purity in conduct, verses uh, 4 through 6, if you would read that with me. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? And then you have these doctrinal exhortations, verses 7 through 15 and verse 17. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So he's talking about elders, respecting them, obeying them. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, uh, and forever. And then notice this. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those who are devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. 
for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come, trying to convince them not to revert back to Judaism. Verse 15, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, uh, for that would be of no advantage to you. So you see the Hebrews author really at the end of his letter is trying to rattle out all these encouragements, all these exhortations. Uh, hey, be Christ-like to those around you. Let your light shine. Show brotherly love. Show hospitality. Care for those who are struggling to care for themselves. Be pure personally. And then, of course, be pure doctrinally as well. Uh, get away from those who are spoiling your influence. Uh, don't revert back to Judaism, but cling fast to Jesus and obey your elders. But we're zeroing in on Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 1. Let brotherly love continue. And this one's a little bit longer than the ones we've been looking at, at least in English. The other two were two words. This one's four. Uh, but in Greek, it's less than four words because that word brotherly love or brotherly affection in your Bible is one word in Greek. And that starts us off with our first point, and that's just, what is brotherly love? And I think it's pretty self-explanatory, but there's a couple of interesting points about this Greek word. It's one you've heard, even if you've never taken a single second of Greek class, and that is Philadelphia. Probably heard it, maybe you've seen it on a map. That's why it's called the city of brotherly love, because it's a compound word meaning brotherly love, brotherly affection. I'm not sure if Philadelphia sticks to that reputation. I'm getting a yes and a no, so it's kind of split 50-50. Uh, on that, uh, but that's what the city was, was named after. And this word, you've got a compound word, the, one of the several Greek words for love, phileo, mixed with the Greek word for brother or sibling, uh, which is Adelphos, uh, and you have Philadelphia, brotherly love, the love between siblings, and that's exactly what it means. One scholar defines this word as the love that characterizes siblings. And I think it's a pretty universal phenomenon. Certainly not every family is the same. But usually, as a rule of thumb, you have a pretty good amount of love for your brother or for your sister, your, your blood relatives who are close to you like that. Now, obviously, sometimes there's some drama. Sometimes there's some tattletelling and some hair pulling. But when push comes to shove, you're willing to stand up and stick up for those who are your brother or your sister. It's interesting because one writer suggests that the New Testament is the only place where this word is used in the Greek world outside of the context of the home. In other words, when people were used to hearing this word, they were used to hearing it in context of their family, their brother and sister. But for this word to be applied to a group of people who were not blood, who were not kin, who really weren't fleshly brothers and sisters was kind of a, a radical departure from the usual use of the word. And I think it goes to show the kind of love that God expects us to have. It really shocks the culture around us, and at least it did in the first century, the time that it was used, and it's used abundantly throughout the New Testament. And Christians are to have this type of love for one another. I think it would have been a radical thought for the time. This love that's usually shared to describe one of the closest filial relationships, a brother and a brother, or a brother and a sister, or a sister and a sister, is now used to be applied to people who do not live in your physical household, 
people who you do not share a name with, people who you do not share blood with, at least not the blood of your parents. And I think those of us who have siblings can kind of latch on to why this word would be used in a Christian setting. Because even if you don't share hobbies with your brother or your sister, even if you disagree with them, a majority of the time, most of us, when it came down to it, we would stand up for them, we would maybe even die for them, we would go out on a limb and do what we could for our brother and our sister. I'm reminded of my own brother, many of you know Liam, uh, whenever I read that verse, and if you ask my mom, she'll tell you that no two children that she knows were less alike than me and Liam. I mean, Liam, you see him and he's running around. When I was his age, I was almost the exact opposite. And him and all of his grand stories and just how funny he is, I was not like that. And growing up, being 13 years older than him, most weekends in high school, it was my job to babysit him while his parents worked. So he kind of developed this view of me, even though I was his brother, as kind of a disciplinarian. And that kind of made us, you know, not, not always as friendly as it could have been, I'll say that. And, uh, but when it comes down to it, even if he annoys me more than anybody I've ever met, when it comes down to it, when he needs help, I'm going to help him. You know, when I hear that he's being bullied at school, I take that personally. It makes me want to go down to the school and talk to the bullies or their parents or do something about it, right? Even if I think he's annoying, even if he gets on my nerves, because he's my brother, because I have that brotherly love, I want to stick up for him and I want to help him. Which brings us to our next point, that kind of love, that brotherly love, should be present among us as Christians. And that's kind of a logical uh, implication of this verse here, let brotherly love continue. If it's to continue, it has to be there in the first place. We can't let it go on if, it, if it's not even there, right? And the only way for brotherly love to continue is if it's something we mindfully seek to show each other. It's not necessarily going to come naturally. Me living with my brother, it comes naturally. I know we share a mother. I know, you know, I've grown up with them. We live in the same house, or used to. Um, that kind of comes naturally. But for me to love like a brother or a sister, somebody who's my brother or sister in Christ, I'm going to have to think about that carefully and see what God has to say about it. Brotherly love is, is commanded a couple of different times. If you would look at Romans chapter 12, verse number 10. Romans 12, 10. And in this section, in this context of Romans 12, Paul is really, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, um, just throwing out all these commands for the Romans on what Christian life is supposed to look like. And one of those things that's supposed to define and really be a characteristic of genuine Christianity is brotherly love. Look at Romans 12.10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Brotherly love, same idea. Outdo one another in showing honor. And that word, therefore, honor has kind of a background of value. It's saying, I'm going to value you. I'm going to value your time. Other places in the New Testament, like Philippians 2, I'm even going to value you to a degree over I would value myself. I'm not going to be selfish. I'm willing to spend my time, spend my resources to help you if that's what you need. That's part of what brotherly love is. Also, notice 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 9. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, and we were in 1 Thessalonians uh, last week, but notice here what he says, chapter 4, verse 9. And this is right after Paul had finished um, this discussion about fornication, how it ought not to be among them, how each man should know how to handle himself and his wife. And then in 1 Thessalonians 4.9, Paul kind of shifts gears and he says, Now concerning brotherly love, 
you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And remember I mentioned loving my brother, who's my flesh brother, kind of comes naturally. But loving as a brother or a sister, those who are my Christian brothers or sisters, that's something I need to be taught. And Paul says we're taught that by God. Just like the Thessalonians were, so are we. And God teaches us that uh, he's the one who's made brotherly love possible. Because he's the one who has made us a family. In Luke chapter 8, verses 20 through 21, a crowd around Jesus tells him, Look, your mother and your brothers are trying to talk to you. And he answers them, Luke 8, 21. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. See, by hearing Jesus' words and obeying them, we become part of Jesus' family. We become family members with each other, spiritually, of course. Remember that new birth in John chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. That birth of water and the spirit. That new birth ushers you into a new kingdom, God's kingdom. And once you've had that new birth, you belong to a new family. And you ought to treat your new family members as members of your own spiritual household. Which tips us off to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Remember what Paul says there. He's writing to Timothy. And he says, I've written this so that if I delay, you know how to conduct yourselves in the household of God, which is the church of God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. That word for household. Sometimes it's translated family. That's the, that's the description that's going on there. We are in the church of God. You're in the family of God. And we're family members of each other in a spiritual sense. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, there it's written that Jesus coming down in flesh, suffering what he suffered because of that, for sanctification of our sins. Now he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Altogether, siblings with Jesus, God, our Heavenly Father. Of course, Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29, you're all sons of God through faith. As many of us have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Now there's None of these worldly distinctions, as it were. Verse 29, if you're a Christ and you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We're all co-heirs. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. When you trace out these thread of verses, and there's, there's a lot more, we see that truly indeed, having been buried in Christ in baptism, having gone through that new birth, now we have a new family. In fact, Jesus says that that's one of the things you gain in Christ. Turn in your Bibles to Mark 10, 29 through 30, if you would. Mark 10, 29 through 30. And this is a verse that's brought a lot of comfort to me, and I've seen it lived out in my own life. Mark 10, 29 through 30. This is right on the heels of the rich young ruler. Remember the rich young ruler? He comes to Jesus, Master, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus lists some commandments for him to follow. He says, Master, I've kept those since, it, since I was young. Jesus says, one thing you lack, knowing his heart, go and sell all of your possessions to the poor and follow me. And it says that he went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had many possessions. And then he mentions... Uh, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And he says it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle. And then Peter speaks up. And he says, we've left everything to follow you. What do you mean it's so difficult to enter the kingdom of God? 
Notice Jesus' response, Mark 10, 29 through 30. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. But notice what Jesus says. says, Essentially, Peter, what you've left, you'll be repaid. And obviously, most of the time when we hear that, what will we say? Of course. You know, with eternal life, with the eternal riches and glory that God offers us. But Jesus says, not only will you be repaid then, you'll be repaid now. Notice him. You will receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, but it comes with persecution. And Jesus' point is, Peter, you say you've left your family, but look around, you've gained a family as well. And for those of us who maybe our family relationships are strained because of the gospel, look at the family you've gained. Those of us who've had to forsake uh, great wealth to be a Christian, look at the wealth that you've gained in Christ in this life and in the one uh, to come. So we see there that we gain a family in Christ and Really, what the Hebrews author is trying to encourage his audience is to live like it. You know your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now love each other like a brother and a sister would love each other. The last point this evening, brotherly love must be continued. So not only is it to be present in the first place, but it must be strived after. It must be something that we seek to do not just once, not you know just maybe if it's convenient or maybe if I have the time or if I, have, uh, if I feel like it. But this is something that we strive for. This is something the Hebrews author, the way he writes it, it's a moral necessity. We have to make sure that brotherly love continues among us as Christians. Each of us have a responsibility to maintain the church as a place of brotherly love. It's not just the preacher's jobs or the elder's job or the deacon's job. It's all of us. All of us have that decision, that choice to love one another with that brotherly love. Affection. Notice what 1 Peter 3, 8 says, and the importance that Peter puts, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, on brotherly love. He's kind of summing up everything that these Christians that he's writing to are to have in their lives. And in 1 Peter 3, 8, notice what he writes. He says, finally, all of you, not just a couple members, not just the leaders, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And those things often go hand in hand. It's easier to love my brother and sister in Christ with brotherly love if I have sympathy. It's easier to love my brother or sister in Christ with brotherly love if I have a tender heart and a humble mind. And I'm not looking for my own desires only, but also for those of those around me, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice also 1 Peter uh, 1, 22 through 23. We're kind of transitioning to a little bit more of a practical section. How can we cultivate brotherly love? A couple of different things. In the first place, brotherly love ought to flow or proceed from the recognition that we've been born again and purified. And I kind of touched on that earlier, but really this is something that Peter brings together in 1 Peter 1, 22 through 22, 22 through 23 rather. He says, since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, we obey God's word, we're saved so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, love one another constantly. Why? Because, verse 23, you have been born again, 
not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Notice how Peter links the new birth in Christ with loving one another, loving other Christians with that brotherly love. Verse 22, it seems like it flows from it. Because I've been purified, because I've got a pure heart now in Jesus Christ, I love my brothers and sisters in Christ with a sincere brotherly love. Because I've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Because I have that new birth, that new family, I love my brothers and sisters in Christ with that sincere brotherly love. So I ought to flow from that reality and that recognition. I've been born again, now I ought to act like it. Also, for brotherly love to continue, we must make every effort. We must seize every opportunity. Turn in your Bibles, please, to 2 Peter 1, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 11. And it's most likely a section you're familiar with, but I think it's definitely worth a close reading with our theme tonight in mind. 2 Peter 1, and I'll begin reading in verse number 3, if you would follow along. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So through what God's done and our response to what God's done, we're saved. We've escaped the corruption of the world. We are partakers in the divine nature. We have all of these precious promises. He goes on to say, verse 5, For this very reason, since that's the case, since in Christ you have all of these spectacular things, make every effort, some translations be diligent, make every effort to supplement or to add to your faith virtue, and virtue knowledge, and knowledge self-control, and self-control steadfastness, and steadfastness godliness, and godliness, brotherly affection, and brotherly affection, love. Notice how brotherly love, brotherly affection is nestled in right in the middle of that list of characteristics that we're to be making every effort to add to our faith. Verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, so it's not just something we do once, it's something we're always seeking out. This are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if I'm adding these things to my faith, brotherly love included, I'm not going to be ineffective. I'm not going to be unfruitful in my Christianity. Verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Somebody who can just see what's right in front of him. He's not looking around, he's not seeing the bigger picture, he's not looking back on what Christ has done for him, and he's not adding to his faith. He's unfruitful and ineffective, Paul, Peter would say here. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, brotherly love included, you will never fall. For in this way, what way? Practicing these qualities, brotherly love included, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We see that one of the marks of a genuine Christian is brotherly love. We are to make every effort to show that in our life, and it's something we must be intentional about fostering and growing. Lastly, if we are to continue in brotherly love, that's a lot easier if we are invested in the lives 
of our fellow believers. And I know it's hard. I know we're busy and we have schedules and we have all these things going on. Sometimes it's hard to set apart time to go to somebody's house or invite somebody into your house or to go out to eat with somebody or whatever it may be. There are also times when the church makes it pretty easy to assemble together. At least I hope we do. We have things like fellowship lunches uh, right after services, which I hope you're here for, and we can sit with each other and eat with each other and talk to one another and grow closer to each other. Either way, it's easier to show brotherly love to people whom you are invested in. Notice some things about the early church with me. Notice Acts chapter 2, 42 through 44. Notice how those first Christians, those early Christians, are described. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things common. Notice that thing there, though. We spend so much time on that all things common. Do we still have that today? What exactly does that mean? Sometimes we skip over that first part. They were together. They were spending time together. They were invested in each other's lives. They got to know each other better. Look also or listen to Acts chapter 4, 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything common. But notice that there again. Sometimes we rush to the end of that verse. But all who believe were of one heart and one soul. And when you're of one heart and one soul and you're spending time together, it's a lot easier to get to know people. It's a lot easier to actually add this brotherly love to your life and let it be shown in your conduct. In conclusion, I hope we are all on the same page that we, one, need to have brotherly love for each other, and two, we need to make sure that it continues. And the only way to do that is to be uh, attentive to it. The only way to do that is to be mindful and intentional and actually seek to be guided by God through his word and to love each other as we should. Because we are a new family in Christ, and we ought to act like it. It doesn't mean we all have to have the same interests. It doesn't mean we all have to have the same hobbies doesn't mean there won't ever be any conflict, but if the love of Christ rules in our hearts, we will have brotherly love, one for each other. We are a family, made one through the love of the Savior. Let's continue to love each other with brotherly love. The only way we're able to love each other in this way is because of the love that God has given us. Last verse we're going to look at tonight. Look in your Bibles, please, in 1 John chapter 4 beginning in verse number 7. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse number 7. And this is a, it's going to be a slightly longer reading, but I hope you'll follow along or listen attentively with everything we've just learned or been refreshed about in mind. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born Uh, been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. 
And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so, so, as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This evening, are you walking in this love? Have you confessed that Jesus is the Son of God coming into the world, just like we read about in 1 John 4? Are you a Christian tonight? If so, are you loving your brother? Are you loving your brother because you've been taught love by God himself? If you've yet to accept the gift that his love has offered you, tonight's the night to do it, to put Christ on in baptism to confess that Jesus is who he said he is after coming to faith in him and repenting of your sins, to be joined with him in his death, to rise again with him in his newness of life, to be a part of the best family you could ever join. That invitation is left for you tonight. If you're here tonight and you're struggling with brotherly love, maybe you have something against a brother or sister in Christ, tonight's the night to resolve that. Maybe there's something to repent of. Perhaps you just need prayers for strength like I know many of us, myself included, do. If you feel the need to come forward, let's do it right now as we sing this song.